0: Well good morning. Uh, I think as the mornings get colder, it gets a little harder to to wake up in the morning. So we look a little thin. I'm sure we'll fill up as time goes. Um, Welcome to our Sunday School Hour and um, perhaps some introductory comments while people are still arriving. We're studying the book, What Happens When You Worship, and I've recommended this book to you. You don't have to buy it. It may be helpful for you to read it. No need to have it in the Sunday school because that'll just be distracting. I will be teaching through this book as I have been. We called our our series Christian Worship. Initially, I thought this would be really small, you know, a couple of lessons, but it's not, and there's no need to rush. In fact, today we're just going to cover one of the chapters in the book, the first chapter on the theology of worship and the reason we call it Christian Worship, the series, is because that's what it is, and uh, not what happens when you worship, because I, I have some other resources, and I'll refer to other books, so I don't want to be totally bound, but today's lesson, particularly, I'm pretty bound to what he has to say, a wonderful little book that can reshape our thinking about worship, even though you may have been worshiping for 20 years. It's, it's a wonderful study to have. And then, of course, Tozer's uh, classic book on worship, uh, Worship by W. Tozer, and then uh, there's a couple of other books, in Reverence and Awe, and, and there's many books written on this subject. This is one book that's captured my attention and has been extremely meaningful to me. We're not going to move fast through this book. There's no need to because I only teach once a month, mostly, unless uh, Pastor Sam's away. So uh, we'll just create our own pace, and if that takes us the whole of next year, that's also fine. I'm guessing probably somewhere around 12 or so um, lessons. This then is our third lesson. Let's open with prayer. Our Father, we bless you for this, your day. We thank you that this is your day, and yet you have made it about man. For we read even our Savior that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Oh, Lord, we pray, lighten our understanding, help us to grasp your word, the importance of worship in your church. Oh, Father, we pray and commit our whole day to you, our worship service later in the afternoon, the prayer meeting and worship service, the Lord's Supper. We commit these to you, praying that you would help us to worship you the way that you seek worshipers to worship you, in spirit and in truth. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what happens when we worship? Uh, kind of a strange question. First, and you already have an idea of where he's going with this. So, so far in our study on worship, we've considered the first lesson, the importance of worship, which we'll just refresh on a little bit as it overlaps with the first point from today and then last time we were together uh, we started considering what happens when we worship and that was the topic or the heading last time but why i say started is because the whole book is about what happens when we worship not only what we do but primarily what we sometimes don't realize what god is doing when we worship him um, so as we avail ourselves of the means of grace, we want this to become more meaningful. And as we ended last time, we spoke about taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is one day, all of our lives really, but this is one day in which the Lord ministers to us as we come and worship Him and we truly see as we leave this place that we refreshed revitalized, and our faith is strengthened. We've been encouraged by the worship and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and all these means of grace, means for strengthening our faith. So now we start on the section which will, there are six chapters. I don't say we'll take six lessons on the theology of worship, and it's not going to be a detailed course uh, on, uh, detailed class on the theology of worship, And we'll just take a few points every time. And yet it's important to study, that's what theology is, to study what God has revealed about worship in the scriptures that we may know the why, the what, and the how of worship and start to appreciate what happens when we worship, which most of the time we cannot see or feel. We can certainly feel that. God sometimes visits us in a peculiar and a beautiful way uh, during our worship or after our worship as we leave. But most commonly, it's not something that's tangible that we can see. Yet we understand by faith how God works supernaturally. And that is a point that we discussed already in us and through us in our gathered corporate worship. And that's why people who tell me, some members of my own family, I don't need to go to church because when I play golf, I worship God in nature. Wrong, wrong. There is no means of grace there. You can appreciate nature. and Yes, you can worship God for His nature, but this is supernatural. This is God ministering to us. This is worshiping in spirit and in truth. And the importance to see how God blesses His church when we draw near to Him, when we respond to His call to worship and what it truly means to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's what we want to know. And that's how we can get the full benefit of the Lord's Day. And so I've said this before. Sometimes it may be necessary for us to reset Push that reset button. You know, when sometimes something goes wrong on your computer, just reset and start again. normally sorts out the problem. And sometimes we need to reset. In a modern world, that's distorted the view of worship. Uh, to accommodate people, to entertain people, to become more seeker-sensitive. The worship has so much and so often in so many churches become man-centered rather than about God. And how he is building his church and blessing him while they worship him in the way that pleases him. And Jesus' words are, this is what the Father is seeking. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So the theology of worship and I have just uh, one point really to consider with two sub points under that. Number one, and this is the heading, this is what I want us to drive home to our thoughts and our minds and our hearts and to consider. Number one, worship is the most important thing we will ever do. I'm going to repeat that. Worship is the most important thing that we will ever do. You may recall what we considered in our first lesson when we spoke about the importance of worship. We reminded ourselves of the greatest commandment, and we cited which is cited in Deuteronomy and endorsed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We also reminded ourselves of the first of the Ten Commandments to worship God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the Westminster Catechism. We also referred to that first question and answer: What is the chief end of man? What is man's main purpose, to enjoy God, to, to glorify God, I'm sorry, and to enjoy him forever. And so in this first chapter on the theology of worship, Cruz circles back, Cruz, the author of, of this book, circles back to this point. Contrary to what we may feel and think, he says worship is exciting, Worship should be exciting, and worship is important. And now in the heading today, in this chapter, it says, Worship is the most important thing that we will ever do. So what is happening? What are we doing when we worship? We are doing the most important thing that we could ever do when we come and worship. Well, he gives us two uh, two Two reasons for this. And I've changed the heading. If you read the book, just for clarity's sake, I changed these two subheadings. And here's the first reason that he gives uh, for this. Number one, man was created to worship God. Man was created to worship God. This is really a simple first fact that we've already established when we spoke about the importance of Of worship, and this is what Cruz calls internal design. Man was created to worship God. This is something that was programmed into us, almost saying that internal design. And you remember Bayes, Pascal. In 1670, I think we refer to this, he wrote this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, our creator, made known through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through nature, we can appreciate and know that there is a God, but to truly worship him. We have this desire within ourselves The philosopher said, a God-shaped vacuum that we will never satisfy unless we worship God, which was intended to do. This is what Calvin says about that. There is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of deity. Romans 1 talks about that, of course. This we take to be beyond controversy. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of divine majesty. We were pre-programmed to worship, and that has never left man, even those who don't worship God. We all worship something or someone And also, as we know so well, in Romans, Paul refers to natural revelation, namely the created things that points man to the wonders of creation to prove to the natural unconverted man the truth of the existence of a creator, so that all men are without excuse. And our accountability, all men's accountability, not only to worship him, to acknowledge him, but also responsibility to worship him. So worship is the most important thing we could ever do. Why? Because we were created to worship God. And it's not just about the light of nature. That isn't enough. As, uh, more than the light of nature, theologians believe there's an innate desire in the heart of every human being to worship something or someone In other words, as Cruz says, our hearts were made to yearn for, to desire after, and offer worship to God. Whether we respond or not is, of course, a different question. And in theology, if you were interested, this sense of deity is known as sensus divinatus. And we all have it. Cruz says we have something inside of us that tells us that there is something greater out there and we owe him our worship. He goes on to say that in the garden, Adam and Eve had this sensus divinatus. They knew their maker and they knew they were called to worship him. So what went wrong in the garden? Well, what plunged humanity into the curse uh, into the curse of sin was an act of misplaced worship. Eve sought her own glory rather than God's. And as Calvin hints in his quote, even the fall could not take away that pull of religion. It could not take away our internal design, which is to be worshippers. He says, what has changed is that we desire to worship. The desire is still there and it will always be there. Romans 1, that passage i refer to, let me read that to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth that God is alive, that God demands, and that we are born to worship God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because that God has shown it to them. By his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, though they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in his thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And even the Israelites of old, God's covenant people, bowed down and worshipped a golden calf and the gods of the Canaanites and the Philistines. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Worshipped and served created things. The creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. A very important passage there. The point is, this was God's purpose and design from the very beginning. And the fall of man with entry of sin into the world proves the point and doesn't undermine it. People may say, well, that didn't last long, did it? People are no longer worshiping God. But man's ability to sin was by God's design of permission, if you like. In fact, God uses the fall of man in the garden as a promise of restoration for future worship. Genesis 3.16 and salvation for man in God's redemptive plan... To show forth his grace and mercy. All this was in God's permissible plan. Nothing was outside of God's design. And the restoration of man after the fall is to this end. To make us worshippers of God again. By reconciling us to himself through his son. So that the born again believer through the righteousness and merits of Christ, may worship God in spirit and in truth. They were in the garden walking with God, enjoying fellowship with God, who intended, made to worship God, and then they fell. And God, who is rich in mercy, right there in the garden says, I will again make you a people through the Lord Jesus Christ his suffering servant who worshiped me. So if creation made us worshipers, the fall of man and his subsequent redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ makes us better worshipers in the new covenant in his blood. That's the purpose. And the purpose is not deleted or nullified by the fall. It's strengthened by the fall as God presents his grace and mercy in his redemptive plan for man so that we can once again draw near to God and worship him through the merits and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find evidence of the importance of worship in the fact that ever since the fall, God has been in the business of reclaiming one thing, worshipers, worshipers. <laughs> That is what God is doing. The purpose of redemption is bringing mankind back to their created purpose of glorifying God, of enjoying God. So Cruz says, worship is exciting. Worship is exciting. Consider Jesus' words to the woman at the well. You remember this passage well. uh, Excuse the pun. John 4 and 23 But the hour is coming, she said, because she was asking about where she would worship you. On this mountain, because the the Samaritans worship there, and the Jews worship on that mountain. Jesus said, the hour is coming, and is now here, because he had come. When true worshipers will worship the Father, wait for it, Lamarada Baptist Church, no. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is... Listen to this word, seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Did you get that? God is seeking people to worship him. Uh, Robert Rayburn, in his book, Oh Come Let Us Worship, says, and I quote, Nowhere in all the scripture do we read of the see- God seeking anything else, from the child of God. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that the Lord seeks our service. Nowhere do the scriptures tell us that the Lord is seeking witnesses. It is not without real significance that the only time in scripture when the word seek is used of God's activity is in connection to finding worshipers. Worship is the most important thing We will ever do. We were created to worship. Number two, the second reason he gives, and there's only two, so we're not going to be long, I think, this this morning. We won't be. The second reason why worship is the most important thing we'll ever do is, number two, worship on earth is preparation for eternity. Okay, so I'm going to live. 70 years, Lord willing, maybe 80 years. My mother's 90. My mother-in-law is 90. My mother's 91. Cruz calls this our eternal destiny. This breath on earth is to what purpose? Our eternal destiny to worship God forever and ever. He says that beyond being wired to worship, that innate desire to worship God, that God-shaped vacuum, as the philosophers tell us, we find further proof of the all-importance of this duty when we consider that worship is the primary activity that extends from this world to the next. Listen again. Worship is the primary activity that extends from this world to the next. When you're playing a sport and I played rugby, you train and you train and you have other matches and you have matches and you lose and you win, but everything is towards that final goal to win the state championships or the school local championships, whatever it is, and worship on earth. What we were created to do is to this end. This will carry over into eternity. Now, do you want to argue with me that worship is not the most important thing that you will ever do? It's the primary activity that extends from this world to the next. Not much is said about our activities in the next world. That's why cartoonists have pictures of you playing harps on a cloud and floating around with wings. and things, Because we don't know exactly what the activity is going to be in the next world but this is made clear in the scriptures that worship is the primary activity that will happen in heaven and in fact as it should be on earth because that's the reason we were created all other duties of man in creation to work to marry to procreate To love our neighbor must always be overshadowed with this one all-important duty, and that is to be worshippers of God. That is the most important thing that you'll ever do. That is the final rugby match that you're going to after all the hard work. This is what we are created for. This is what our final destiny will be. And if we think about all the teaching we have in scriptures, in the scriptures about heaven... This is really the only thing that we'll take with us. It's the only thing that is perpetual from this life into the next. It seems to be to be worshippers. You won't take your career with you into heaven. Your accounting degree to run a company, if you're a nurse or a doctor, that's very important to help. Perhaps I can take my degree with me. You cannot take it with you into heaven. You will not be married in heaven. So if you don't get married on this earth, there's not going to be opportunity to marry in heaven. Neither can you take up your existing marriages in heaven. Sorry, Robin. Why? Because of all the divorce. Because the Pharisees asked Jesus, then whose husband will she be if she's had five, uh, five husband or wives? There will not be the necessity of human care for the body there will be no sickness, no sorrow, no pain, no diseases of the mind or of the body. For we will have perfect resurrection bodies. There will no longer be need for sanctification. Since our bodies will be raised incorruptible. In the garden they were able, they were even permitted to sin. In heaven there is no longer the ability to sin. Because our remaining sin will be no more. We will be holy as he will holy. But this one activity is clear. We will continue to do the most important thing. To worship God and the Lamb and the Spirit. The three in God. Uh, the one in three and one God. As the saints who have gone before us already do in their spirits around the throne of God. They worship the Lamb Day and night. And they wait and they long for the final resurrection of their bodies on the last day. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something that we can reset our worship about? Cruz says this, While the new heavens and the new earth will hold for the elect much more than an eternally sustained worship service, for we will eat, rest, fellowship, and much more, wor- much more worship is undoubtedly the primary undertaking of believers in heaven. We will serve. We will love. We will do many things that have not been revealed. But this remains the primary activity in heaven. So on earth, this is the most important thing that we can ever do. So let's get it right. What should we be doing in worship? What is happening when we worship? Let me read some passages from Revelation. Chapter 4 and verse 10 and 11. The 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and are created. And then John in his vision, and that's where we learn the most about heaven in John's vision on the Isle of Patmos. In chapter 5, verse 11 to 14, he looks again. I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the land that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature on heaven and on earth saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders bowed down and worshipped him. And another interesting thing. Uh, That tells us that worship is the primary activity in heaven. John, in his vision uh, in heaven on two occasions, was so overwhelmed by this angel showing him all these things that he bows down and worships the angel. He's like totally overwhelmed and he's reprimanded. In chapter 19, verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And when the other count John falls down in worship, he's so overwhelmed by what he sees in heaven. But he said to me, chapter 22 and verse 9, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. In chapter 14, the angel declares the eternal gospel over all the earth. And the message is not what we expect. It is simply this, Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, What do you think the angel said? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? No. (laughs) He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And Cruz reinforces this argument by reminding us of the Great Commission. And the main verb, what's the main verb in the Great Commission? Who knows? Go. Pastor Sean says go. That's not the main verb in the Great Commission. The great verb in the Great Commission is make disciples. You must go. But the big verb is make disciples and not go into all the world. Indeed, there's an imperative to go, but to understand the Great Commission as merely going out to evangelize is to have too narrow a narrower view of... Of the Commission. He refers to the book With Reverence and Awe, another great book by Darrell Hart and John Muther, who rightly point out that the Great Commission is not only about evangelism, neither is the Great Commission primarily about evangelism, but discipleship. Evangelism is only the beginning of the process, discipleship grows deepest in the context of worship. We are trained up in the faith and we mature in our understanding of the things of God by engaging in biblical, robust worship each week, in and out, week, in and out. Therefore, it is the church, and in particular, the church in worship that fulfills the Great Commission. Listen to this quote. I'm sorry about all the quotes. They're really great quotes. Most of them are in that book. If the church begins to define herself in terms of her tasks and missions, this will significantly distort her self-understanding and potentially displace her primary function, the worship of God, the worship of God. The church has three tasks or purposes, worship, discipleship, And missions, but the primacy of worship becomes clearer when we consider our final destiny. What we will be doing for ages and ages without end in heaven. Discipleship, education, spiritual maturation will pass away. Evangelism and missions will pass away, for the elect would have been gathered, and every knee will bow before King Jesus. But worship, praise, and exaltation will remain. We might even consider that every Sunday is a practice for that great day in glory. Not only that, but this means that every week God is giving us a taste of the bliss and the blessedness that awaits us in glory. Worship is the most important thing that we will ever do. Therefore, our heart should be turned towards heaven every Lord's day. And we should have an earnest desire to join that redeemed host. As the hymn goes, and I close with this, Oh, that with yonder sacred throng, we at his feet may you fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Next time, we'll consider the theology of worship. Part two, you see, they're really simple and points that we need to search our hearts so that we might become better worshipers. Next week, next time, rather, we'll consider we are being shaped. What happens when we worship? We are being shaped. Well, thank you for your attention. Enjoy some fellowship, cup of coffee, and um, we're good on the time. Thank you.